Our speaker, please. I didn't know you were going to tell that story. <laughs> Jeez. Hi, I'm Gretchen. From Al-Anon, of course. Um, I would like to introduce our, our Al-Anon speaker. Um, I knew her about 35 years ago when she, when, when she uh, came to work in the establishment where I was working. I didn't like her much, and she'll tell you all about that. <laughs> she was the only other woman in the place. But anyhow, I, she has a wonderful story, and once she moved back to Oregon to Eugene is when I really uh, started spending a lot of time with her and she has a wonderful story and she does a lot of service work so please welcome give her a well, warm welcome please Leanne T. Leanne. Her name is Leanne T. All right can you hear me? Hi, I'm Leanne, and I'm a grateful member of uh, Al-Anon Family Groups. You guys are really beautiful. Scary, <laughs> but really, really beautiful people. What? <laughs> well, I don't actually know what I'm going to say, so that's... Uh, uh, a good thing, because when I think about it ahead of time, I don't say what God wants me to say. And I'm here to share uh, my experience, strength, and hope. And I really like to focus on the hope more than anything else. This feels a little close. Is that better? Can you still hear me? All righty. So I got uh, into the program in Eugene in, I'm figuring, 1985. And uh, so I've been around here a little while, and I probably should be healed, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I was married to a fabulous alcoholic at that time. He was a blackout drinker, and um, uh, he did naughty things when he was blacked out really naughty things, um, up to and including putting my underwear on and uh, swinging like Tarzan through the fruit orchard in our backyard. <laughs> but he always, um, he always pushed things to the edge, you know, just to the edge and slightly over, and always kept me a little bit off balance, but he was so much fun. And I was crazy about him, just crazy about him. And when it, when it finally uh, came to a head and, and it was clear I couldn't stay with him if he was going to keep drinking, he sobered up. You know, what could be better than that? <laughs> it took him a little while. He wasn't ready to go for it first. But that was really when, when my journey began. And... Um, so back then, uh, I came into our marriage with th uh, two children, and he had one. And uh, then we proceeded to start procreating. And I uh, decided we were going to go camping on Memorial Day weekend. And we had to stop in Corvallis to pick up my stepson. 
And so we drove up there, and uh, they had changed the highway that day, for, and it's still that way now, but it had never been that way before, and we had to make a left-hand turn in front of two lanes, and we didn't know that second lane was there. And a car, or a truck, it was a little Toyota truck, now that I went, it might have been a Datsun. Actually, it was a Datsun. That's how long ago this was, a little brown truck. We made this left-hand turn, and the Datsun hit me. I was sitting in the passenger side, and I happened to be seven months pregnant when that happened. So I am the survivor of a drunk driving accident. Now, I didn't know he was drunk, and you'd think I would be able to pick up on that, but it was uh, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, and who's drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? Somebody who stayed up and drank all night, you know? And uh, the... the uh, they didn't have to use the jaws of life to get me out of that car, but they did have to, um, oh, kind of put that board underneath you, you know, and slide you on it and get it, you know, and take me to the hospital. And I was so worried about the baby. I wasn't all that worried about me, I guess. I, I just, I wasn't, well, you know, actually what happened was I went to a counselor many years later and told the story, and she looked at me and she said, you must have been so scared. And it was like the first time somebody had named that feeling for me, and I was, it was sort of like, yeah, damn it, that's right, I was scared, damn it, you know? And, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I had to go to the hospital and the baby was born the next morning and she was only three pounds, tiny little thing, you know? And I was so scared that she was not gonna make it that I, uh, well, it was so funny because the nurse came in and said, uh, would you like to give her a name? And my husband said, well, we haven't talked about names. And I kind of raised my head up off the pillow and said, her name is Elizabeth Hope. And at this point, he was like, yeah, that's her name. Okay, fine. <laughs> but uh, I made him go in the ambulance because we were in Corvallis and they had to bring her here to the neonatal center at the old hospital. And, and so I said, you go with her, because I was afraid she'd die, and I didn't want her to die alone. She needed to have a member of her family with her. And um, so here's the thing, you know, I'm now, <laughs> in whatever shape I'm in, I had broken bones and internal injuries and lots of things wrong with me, and my doctor at, at Good Samaritan in Corvallis said, you know, we think you're going to have to have liver surgery. And if you do that, you'll be in the hospital for a long time. So we think that the best thing for you is to uh, get, you know, be transported to Sacred Heart so you'll be close to your baby. And then he said, there's an ambulance in the driveway and you're going. You know, he didn't, it, it wasn't like a question. It was like, you know, you know and I was terrified. I, did, I didn't want anybody to move me or touch me or anything, but they put me in that ambulance and I went, I went to Sacred Heart. And at that point, my husband had had the opportunity to see the baby and see that she was, you know, they do all, all these things to him at the neonatal center, but she was fine. Um, nothing was going to change much. And at this point, he's been awake for 48 hours, maybe, by then, you know. And um, so he goes home, and he just gets his clothes off, and he's getting ready to get in bed, and my mother started trying to track me down. <laughs> And I had called her. The first thing I wanted to do after I had the baby was I wanted to call my mom and tell her I had had a little girl. And uh, she's on the phone with him, and she's like, 
you son of a bitch, you better get, you know, I can't find Leanne. And unfortunately what had happened is she called Good Samaritan at the time I was being transported. They said we sent her to Sacred Heart, and of course they called Sacred Heart, and nobody knew anything about me because I hadn't arrived there yet. So my mother, you know, being the kind of mom she was, immediately suited up and showed up, and uh, she came to stay with, uh, with me for a few days. And, and I don't remember much of that time. But I'm, I'm going on a little bit about this accident because that thing changed my life. It aged me overnight, um, but I was always ever hopeful. That's, I am a really hopeful person underneath it all. And uh, I did go home from the hospital, but I didn't go home without pause, let's just say, because I had to leave the baby there. And there was a, you know, I'm just going to put you at ease. She's 33 years old right now, has a degree from Portland State University, and is doing lovely, and she was a keeper. She was a keeper, so she's fine. But uh, in the midst of all of this goings on, um, I had, we get a social worker when you have a baby at, say, when you have a baby in the neonatal intensive care, they give you a social worker to help you with, I, be, I really secretly think they're trying to make sure that you'll pay your bill, but, uh, or that you have adequate insurance or something, you know. But anyway, he came in to visit me and, he, and they were talking about me being able to go home and, you know, what's keeping you from wanting to go home? And he expected me to say, I don't want to leave my baby in the hospital, which was a feeling I had, but the real feeling came out, which was, my husband is a blackout drinker, and I'm afraid to go home with him. And the guy was like, what? You know, he just didn't, didn't, didn't even comprehend what was going on. So he invited uh, Dave in, me, and we, you know, I'm in bed in the hospital, and we're sitting around the hospital room, and I'm pretty sure he thought that uh, we'd just talk about it a little bit and Dave would promise not to drink and everything would be fine, you know? And what happened was Dave stood up and said, what in the world are you talking about? You're crazy, and walked out. He walked out and I knew that there, nothing was going to change and that I was gonna be going home with a blackout drinker. So this social worker, I think he said something to the chaplain because this chaplain came to visit me and he, it turned out, I, f I found out that he was um, a former chaplain for Serenity Lane. And we talked for a little bit and then he offered to pray with me. And he held my hands and we prayed and in the prayer he asked God to help me turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God. Now, I'd been in Al-Anon just a few months at this point, and uh, I understood what that meant. I understood that it was the third step and that I had to let God into this situation or I would, I was, you know, lost without it. But it, I, the immediate thing I had was a sense of everything's gonna be okay. And people here that are here that know me know that one of the things I say a lot is it all works out, it always does. And in this case, uh, 
the, the chaplain left and um, the social worker came back and said, well, I took a look at your insurance and you can have a maid three days a week for 12 weeks or something like that, I don't know. And then I got a phone call from my sister and she said she could come and be with me the day I went home from the hospital and she'd stay 10 days or something. And then Dave's mother called and said that she was gonna come and stay for a few days. And his sister came who was a neonatal nurse and she was there when we brought the baby home from the hospital. Uh, Cause she came home on a heart monitor and all that stuff. And so, you know, the desperate prayer of my heart that I didn't even know how to pray but this chaplain knew what my heart wanted and was able to put it into words for me. And the prayer was answered right then and there. And I started turning my will and my life over to the care of God in that minute, and I've been doing it ever since. And, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you that everything was, you know, unicorns and glitter after that, but it wasn't. And things, you know, well, we were dancing our dance. David did not get uh, sober at that time. And about a year later, uh, I, guess, I guess he got hit with a court order that said he was an unfit parent. And that drove him into treatment. But he was kind of, um, we didn't have health insurance at that time, so he went through the VA clinic. And back in those days, that meant you went down to Roseburg and put on pajamas and hung out in the clinic down there or in the hospital down there. Well, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be in treatment, so they sent him to some sort of a treatment facility that was basically just, you know, one key and lock shy of a total lockup. So uh, he hit his bottom there. And from there, from that time on, oh, for the next 13 years, we were a AA Al-Anon couple in the program. And it was, you know, it was everybody's dream come true. And I really thought that he'd go to AA, I'd go to Al-Anon, the kids would go to Alateen, and everything would be, you know, unicorns and glitter. <laughs> and, well, the kids still fought. Uh, he was still very critical and demanding, and I was still a doormat. And there was just no easy solutions for us, and eventually, you know, we were basically like two crippled, crippled adults trying to make one decent parent out of the two of us. It didn't really work. So uh, the day he said that he wanted to divorce me, I was, I remember I called my sister to talk to her about it, and she just goes, what the hell is his problem? You know, it, it was just so clear that that was something he would initiate, never me. It would never be me. And it was a sad and depressing time in my life. And I got into some really nutty things at that time. And I'm telling you this because, you know, I think a lot of people have hopes and dreams that, you know, the partner goes into uh, treatment and, you know, the program's there to support them and everything will be wonderful forever after. And it's just not always true. Um, but it all works out. It always does. So I went to, uh, during this time, uh, <laughs> I, I was needing to cope. And I wanted to, you know, when I first came to Al-Anon, went to my first meeting, I didn't have any delusions about uh, getting David sober, getting my husband to be sober. He told me he would never stop drinking, and I believed everything he said. 
So I knew that I couldn't, I wasn't one of those ones that came to Al-Anon to figure out how to stop him from drinking. But this, this little paragraph here caught my attention. The difficulties of coping with alcoholism in another are much more effectively met when we ourselves reflect attitudes of maturity. And that's the introductory paragraph for our checklist for evaluating our maturity. And at the time, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to check off very many of these. Mostly, I'm immature. I was immature. And I knew that if I wanted to have a marriage, that I was going to have to change. So that was, you know, that was the good news of that situation. But I was never quite able to change good enough and fast enough to please him. And after 13 years, 10 of which were in the program, uh, he wanted out. And um, I was devastated. There's just no other way to put it. It broke my heart. And uh, so to cope during that time, it was when that uh, episode one came out, uh, the one where, um, uh, well, anyway, it's a Star Wars movie. And I bet I saw it 13, 14 times in the theater. And here's why. It, I knew that if I went to that movie, I'd feel better, right? So I just did it a lot. And I remember talking to a counselor about it, and, you know, I'm kind of doing this, and she goes, well, except for the money, I don't see that there's really any harm in it. And I said, well, I always go to the cheap seats, so obviously it's okay, you know. But that's, that was my obsession. You know, I had to put something else into the slot that was uh, my preoccupation with this man. And eventually... Um, Eventually, I snapped, basically, and uh, I was going to have to move. We were in the same apartment complex, and I couldn't stand it. I, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, setting a gun on the table and say, don't look at that gun. The only thing, you know, I could think about was that gun, and I stared, and I, you know, I was watching, who's he got over there, and, you know, it was nuts, and it was not getting me where I wanted, so I decided I would move. And because I, I kept thinking he'd move because he's the one that moved all the time. You know, he was very restless and he didn't have the connection I had with people there. So obviously he should move and people even asked him to move and he just flat out refused. So I decided I was going to move and I, I, I had a psychotic break. There's just no other way to put it. And I went into his apartment and he was meditating. <sighs> But that did not stop me from wrapping my hands around his throat and squeezing. And I was, uh, thank God, he, he had a good, uh, he was smart enough not to resist me. He kind of just went limp. And I ended up crying and storming out of there. And that son of a bitch turned me into the police. <laughs> They showed up at my place of employment the next day and, uh, well, actually they called and said they were going to come and pick me up. It was nice of them to do that. And I said, you know, uh, can I meet you about a block away? <laughs> you know? And so they asked me some questions and, and I ended up in an emergency room to be evaluated uh, psychiatrically. And the, uh, the um, the doctor came in and talked to me for a few minutes, and then he left, and he came back in, and he goes, 
do you have anybody you can talk to? You know, you just need some friends. It was, you know, he didn't think I was crazy. I guess I washed up good or something. I don't know. But I ended up calling some friends in the program. They came and they got me and they took me away from there. And I went ahead and I moved away. And, you know, within three months he left the community and moved to another place. So from that point on, I'm now, you know, well, <laughs> let's backtrack a little bit. I, I didn't feel good about, well, I looked around in my life and what had alcoholism cost me? Now, I've been in the program a while at this point, maybe 10 years, and I, you know, what, what has al al or alcoholism, what has it destroyed or taken away from me in my life? And I, I realized that um, I was smart and I never got to go to college. In fact, I didn't even graduate from high school. And uh, I still don't have a high school degree, actually, but I did get into college. And uh, so I went to San Jose State and I graduated. And I got a, a lovely, useful degree in creative arts. <laughs> so consequently, I'm currently unemployed and looking for a job. But uh, in the same year, my mother died, my husband divorced me, I got severe bronchitis and almost dropped out of college, and then finally graduated in the spring. And so it was a rough year. What can I say, it was a rough year. Um, so I, was, I found a job after I got out of college, and I got myself a little place, and I decided that I, would, I was perfectly fine being the absentee parent. I could parent on weekends, I could be the you know, the sugar mama <laughs> for the kids. And, and uh, so he took the kids and took them up to a, a little town in California called Sonora. And I, you know, I was the, I, every other weekend I had the kids for four days. Well, that didn't last very long because the woman he moved up there with called me at some point and said that he was, uh, had to, to propose to her that he be able to have other relationships at the same time as he's having one with her. And I went, yeah, that's what he did with me too, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of guy he is, I don't know. And, uh, and now all of a sudden my kids, well, he moved out to the garage or the shop or some building on the land, and now my two kids are in the house with some woman that he hates their father's guts. You know, this is not really going to work. So eventually we, re, you know, I got my kids back. And I realized that I, the, what I did with my life at that point was up to me. And um, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God one more time. And I came back to Eugene. Because I wanted, I knew when I came here I was going to give myself to this program. And uh, I did I came back here, I looked up Gretchen, who was my first, well, she actually told me she was my sponsor. <laughs> that was, you know, back in 1985 or something. She goes, well, you've only been talking to me, so I guess I'll just be your sponsor, and that's it. You know, but I looked her up, and immediately we went out to lunch, and I filled her in on the last 15 years or so, and um, I got very involved in the program here in Eugene. And I'm a much ha happier, healthier, saner human being because of it. Uh, I can pretty 
much say that I really don't think I'll be wrapping my hands around anybody's throat, you know. Um, I'm more likely to do this, you know, the shitty little thing like, um, I don't know, let all the air out of your tires or, you know, uh, squeeze honey on the ant trail so I can get it to go all the way through the apartment and into your bed, you know. Those are... <laughs> Or, or, or another favorite revenge of mine is really just to spend his money. That, that usually works. That, that usually gets their attention. Um, I guess the next thing I should be talking about is just service in Al-Anon because I, I, I don't know, there's, I've held most of the positions that are available out here and I was, it's, I've grown so much all along. I was really active in AIS for many years and then we decided to merge AIS back into our district. And I was, you know, I've been a part of that and um, I've been a GR and a liaison and, and now I dithered around but now I'm the district representative for District 6 here in Eugene. And uh, I still find this difficult to believe but I'm doing it one day at a time with a lot of help and support. And uh, I'm going to fast forward to the present. I am, it took me a lot of years to find somebody I could be happy with. I spent, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years a single with, and I have a total of four kids. Got them all up and out of the house and one of them through college and actually two of them through college. I did all this, you know, with no support, no help and, you know, just doing what I had to do. And then I, re then I, I uh, got hired by a little company in town that has since been defunct, but one week after they hired me, they hired the guy that I'm with today. And he was wrong. He was, he was wrong for me. He was all wrong for me. You know, he had the top five things I hate in a human being. Uh, he, he cusses like a truck driver. He smoked. He drank. Uh, he's from Texas, for God's sake. And he's a Republican, ugh, ugh, you know. But he grew on me, and <laughs> so we ended up moving in together, and I can tell you that um, he's got a heart as big as Texas. He's always got my back. When I walked in and said that I had uterine cancer and had to have treatment for it, I knew he wasn't going to want to stay with me because um, his wife had died of cancer and he'd already been through all that and why in the world would he go through that with me, you know? And he was, he was so stand up. He said, what are you talking about? I'm an expert now. Of course I'll help you, you know? And he goes, I can't, you know, the best I can do is give you a place to heal. So he has my back always. And, uh, you know, I was, I just saw him, I had turned my will and my life over to the care of God and God gave me this man, and I am forever grateful for that. And you know, you go all these years and you think, finally, you know, I've gotten some happiness. And uh, then a few months ago, he started getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I was, I kept trying to get him to go to the doctor and he wouldn't go, and uh, I'm not much, I'm not good at nagging. It's not one of the things I do. And, uh, the, you know, the fact that he drank, I just, I did, I did Al-Anon on that. It was just like none of my business. And it, it worked fine for me. And I know he's not an alcoholic because he, he stops when he doesn't, when he's had enough, you know. But 
On the other hand, he likes to tell his drunkalogue a lot. So, you know, I've always been a little confused, but Al-Anon said it's really not any of my business, and the deal breaker for me was always, I, you know, I'm engaged in service. I do a lot in this town. And uh, when we hooked up, I was uh, an Alateen sponsor, which I did for seven or eight years. And I was, you know, the uh, chairperson for AIS. I mean, I was busy in the program, doing a lot of stuff. And one of the things he always said was, do what you do. I don't want you to stop your life just because you're with me. So I, uh, you know, I always really, really appreciated that about this guy. And um, he was getting sicker and sicker, doesn't have health insurance doesn't, you know, what, what can we do? And I, I uh, see a counselor, and I had resolved with that counselor that the thing that I had to do was go home and throw a temper tantrum and cry and stamp my foot and see if I could get him to go to the doctor, you know. And I went home totally, and I don't do that, you know, but I went home totally prepared to debase myself in this manner to get this guy to go to the doctor. And uh, he walked out of his office and said, I've been in email contact with somebody at the VA, and they think I, I should go in and, and get my eligibility certified. So we did that about three weeks ago. And uh, sure enough, he was eligible. And he was uh, in congestive heart failure. And within 30 minutes, they had him in an ambulance and on the way to McKinsey Willamette. And, uh, Within four or five days, they did open-heart surgery on him. Now, this has all been in the last, what, two weeks, right? So they did open-heart surgery on him and saved his life twice, twice. <laughs> so, you know, my prayer during all of that, and, you know, I, I'm kind of stoic when the panic is there, you know, when, when things are in a... I, I stay pretty stoic. And it's like, I learned a long time ago in the alcoholic family that I grew up in uh, to just don't show anything on the outside because it's becomes, it becomes a weapon if you do that, you know. And so I'm staying stoic and all this stuff is happening, but I said the prayer. I turned it over to God. I asked God in my most humble way, you know, I took, it took me a lot of years to find this guy, and I'd like to keep him. So if that's your will, I'd be grateful, you know. And uh, he came through the surgery, and um, he's okay. And I am so glad, because now I'm here today with you, and it was okay for me to leave him. And uh, some things are amazing, you know. When you, when you say that sincere prayer, the, and it's answered, it's just such a beautiful thing. Oh, I forgot to start it. How am I doing? All right. So I want to talk a little bit about growing up in an alcoholic home, because that had more of a profound effect on me than these little stories I've been telling you. Um, I don't see Barb here. But her story last night was just so poignant, so moving. And part of it, I mean, I admired her courage to share it openly at the mic like that because I have some of those experiences too. Um, I was molested a couple, by a couple of different men and my father. And it, it's not something I share about at the mic so much anymore, but I do if I think it might help someone. 
But what I learned from those experiences was that, well, <laughs> men can be predators, so be careful around them. And both of the worst offenders of the molest, for me, gave me money to keep me quiet, which then made my whole relationship with money fairly sick. And, uh, and I know that's true, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And then um, the other thing that happened in my alcoholic home when I was growing up was my parents' idea of discipline was to take the broomstick and hit me with it. So from that I learned, well, besides being afraid for my life, I learned that I was worthless and that, um, well, I also learned that I couldn't get away with anything. My father never did sober up. And he was in a terrible car accident when I was 15, or not car accident, work accident, when I was 15 years old. And he was crippled for the rest of his life from that experience. In fact, they, they said he would never walk again, but he did. But he was never able to work again. And so that, um, well, that had a profound effect on our family. We were poor. My mother was working full time. You know, it was just, it was just tough times. And uh, as it turns out, I found out years later, my dad was molesting my sister, who was afraid that uh, I was being molested and would basically put herself between my father and me to try to save me. I mean, this is all very sick, sick stuff, you know? And uh, he passed away when I was 15. And um, I wanted to cry. My mother came out of the bedroom and said, your father's dead. And I, you know, and I wanted to cry. And she goes, no, 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 you, I, I need you to be strong for me. You know, I need you to take the kids over to this neighbor's house and, and be my rock right now. So I did what I was asked to do. And then later on at, at uh, the party after the funeral, the wake, I guess, same thing, you know, I, I was feeling teary and upset, and my mother's friend said, now, Leanne, you have to be the strong one. Your mom's going to need you. She's going to be depending on you. You know, I heard all that. And I remember my best friend, uh, next-door neighbor, Peggy, she came to talk to me, and, uh, and she was looking at me like, are you going to be all crybaby-ish, you know? And I wasn't. I, you know, I... I'd been told not to cry, so I didn't cry, so, you know, I just, it's like, hey, you know, let's go listen to some records or something. And that was my way of dealing. Well, that was, that was what I was taught to do. Don't cry, be strong, be stoic, you know, let the family depend on me. And that all worked out pretty well, except for when all the fall to roll of getting my dad buried was all done and over with. I, I, find I missed a month of school. The, it, he died in September, and I missed about a month of school. And I went back to school, and we were reading, I think it was a Longfellow poem about some deer with red blood on the snow and whatever, and it triggered me, and I started bawling in this advanced placement English class. And I ran out of the room. I was mortified that I cried in there, you know. But the emotions were coming out, and I couldn't stop them. And our, that high school was, uh, it's probably been torn down because it wasn't exactly accessible, but there was a flight of stairs, a landing, and another flight of stairs. And I was up there on that landing 
which is up high, looking out at this town in such pain, and there was no one I could talk to. My mother needed me to be strong. My mother's friends wanted me to be strong. And, you know, my peers I was just embarrassed with, and there was just no one for me to talk to. And thus begins my commitment to Alateen, because I felt like a, a teenager going through that kind of stuff needs someone to talk to, needs to have a place to let it go. And um, my working with Alateens actually allowed me to heal that experience because I gave it to somebody else, and what I've been taught is the brain doesn't really discriminate between love you show to others and love you show to yourself. The brain just sees love, period. And so I feel, um, I've, I've, <laughs> Alatine helped me recover from that terrible, terrible experience. But there's still some residual because I still have a hard time crying. I don't tear up much. Um, now I'm growing up in an alcoholic home that has no father and my mother is, you know, now I have so, so much compassion for her, you know, she's just trying to make a life, she has four kids, um, and I started rebelling. So uh, I ran away from home when I was 17, and when I called my mother up, I had turned 18, and I was nine months pregnant. And uh, nobody wanted to be my mom. <laughs> I was, but I was here in Eugene, and she came out to visit, and she was very disappointed, but I did not return to Boulder, Montana with her. And, um, you know, I stayed in this town, and I danced my dance and ended up with, well, the father of that baby was an alcoholic, and then I married David, who was an alcoholic. And now, you know, let's just, there's just no other way to put it. I'm the kind of Al-Anon that likes alcoholics. What can I say, you know? And one of the reasons why I stayed in Al-Anon is because you told me it was okay to love an alcoholic. And um, I do love an alcoholic, two or three of them, or four or five. But now, now I try to pick the sober ones as best I can. Um, I've said I'm a lot, haven't I? I'm about done. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my share, and I hope you learned something. And I hope, you know, my prayer as I stood up here was, can I, can I just help one person, God? And I hope that was the case. Thank you.